It's not really a good, there's not a huge punchline. Actually, there was a fire at the fair and they needed water and so they came to me. And in the middle of the night, it's just kind of one of those weird sounds that you kind of like, that could be a bear. As soon as we start leaving that campsite, he's like, I, I literally can't walk. So I like lived in the camp with yeah. the most good story. I was working that one of the husky games. And the boy comes from like up the stairs and he's like, Pretty crazy, right? I think so. I don't know. Okay, I think I've read that. We were like, oh, well, the next time we come, we're going to come with Emma. So we're at the wrong airport. Like, what do you do when you're at the wrong airport? You know when it takes the picture at the top? There's this person's hand right in front of my face. And I was getting nicer, and I was like, what are you doing? You're freaking out. Thank you, One of the kind of amazing things that I feel like I've experienced that I think is like a spiritual thing or God thing is like the bridge got shut down because there was like this massive oil tanker that like caught on fire. We were praying and, and all of a sudden like the clouds like part. Like I mean this is like weird. It was like the clouds part and we could see base camp. As a teenager he excelled at sports. In fact, if you would put a ball, whether it's a football or a baseball in this young man's hands, he would go on the field and miracles would occur. So it's not surprising that pretty much every Division I scout was out there looking at this young man for football or for baseball. He decided to take a full-ride football scholarship to the University of Michigan. He showed up at the University of Michigan to play football, and he sat the bench for two years. Then something happened in his junior year. He stepped onto the field, and he led the Wolverines to, their, to a, a huge bowl victory. The next year, another bowl victory, this time against the number one ranked team, Alabama. Knocked him off in overtime. He played the greatest game of his career. You would think that he would go in the first round, second round of the NFL draft. Well, the, the draft came around, and he went sixth round, 199th pick. And he started his professional career the same way he started his college career, sitting on the bench watching another quarterback play. Well, that is until one day when a guy named Mo Lewis from the New York Jets did rent control on his starting quarterback, a guy by the name of Drew Bledsoe. Bledsoe went down for the count, and on that day, Tom Brady stepped on the field, and the rest is history. He has become one of the greatest quarterbacks to play the game. Now, before you boo me off stage, my Seattle Seahawks fans, let me, let me share that there is no love affair in the McCormick House for Tom Brady. Quick example, last fall, my Kansas City Chiefs, I was born and raised in Kansas City, so the Kansas City Chiefs, my favorite team, my Kansas City Chiefs defeat the New England Patriots in regular season ball. And there's Tom Brady running off the field, and as he's running off the field, my lovely, beautiful, innocent, kind and sweet wife, wearing her Seattle Seahawks jersey, is 18 inches from the TV saying, cry, Tom Brady, cry! There is no love affair in the McCormick house for Tom Brady. But I will share this. The, the man is an incredible quarterback. Just look at his, his statistics. Here we go. Five-time Super Bowl champion. Three Super Bowl rings before the age of 28. Four Super Bowl Most Valuable Player Awards. Three NFL Most Valuable Player Awards. 13 Pro Bowl nominations two NFL Offensive Player of the Week Awards, NFL Comeback Player of the Year Award, and the infamous Burt Bell Award. I have no idea what the Burt Bell Award is, but it's on Wikipedia, so it must be important. 
In 2002, People magazine named Tom Brady as one of the, the 50 most beautiful people in the world. But did you know there was a number 51 out there? An up-and-coming pastor out of Bellingham, Washington. Yes, we have his picture right there. <laughs> Our senior pastor, Bob Marvel. He's still on sabbatical for four more weeks. Freak not, he will be back. Just take it in, people. Take in that mullet. In 2005, Tom Brady did an interview with 60 Minutes, and he said something that I thought was really, really insightful. He said, why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a whole lot of people would say, hey, man, this is what it's all about. I've reached my goal, my dream, my life. Me? I say, ah, there's got to be more than this. I mean, this isn't all it's cracked up to be. Uh, there's got to be more than this. Steve Croft, the interviewer, kind of pushed him on, uh, on, on that topic, and he said, well, Tom, what's the answer? And Tom Brady said in a very honest way, I wish I knew. I wish I knew. Think about this. This guy named Tom Brady, he's at the, the top of his game. He's got a beautiful family. In, in all accounts, he's a great guy from what everybody says, and he's, he's got success, worldly success, and he's saying, there's got to be more than this. What am I missing and if you've said that same thing, you're in really good company. In fact, if you get anything at all out of today's teaching, I want you to get this. Without God, life is meaningless. Without God, life is meaningless. So if that's true, and we believe it's true, then there's a, you flip that on its head. With God, particularly Jesus, life is very meaningful. Life has hope, and life has reason. Well, God's got a lot to say about that as we hit week eight of our summer series called Stories Worth Telling. It's in this series in which we're pulling apart 12 or 14 characters of the Bible, maybe, maybe 14 or 15, I don't know, it's a lot. And we're looking at their lives, lives that resemble lives like you and me, with highs and lows, wins and losses, mistakes made, crushing moments, victorious moments. And in all of those lives, God steps in and he flips their world on their heads. Andy Stanley said that the only story worth telling is an extraordinary story, and I think you'll agree with me, this summer all the characters we've looked, like, looked at have had extraordinary stories. Well, today is no different. We're looking at a guy named Solomon, known as the wisest man to walk the face of the planet next to Jesus. His story is told in a whole bunch of books in the Bible. We're going to be in one book in particular, one book that he wrote the book of Ecclesiastes. So turn in your Bible to Ecclesiastes. Let me set the scene for what's going on. First to get to Ecclesiastes, open up your Bible, smack dab in the middle is Psalms. Go right to books. You're going to hit Ecclesiastes. It's about 3,000 years before our time. 2,000 years ago, Jesus walked the earth. 1,000 years before that, Israel has its first king, a guy named Saul. He rules and reigns for a handful of decades. David comes on, you know, David and Goliath fame. He rules and reigns for 40 years, and his son then takes over. And Ecclesiastes is written at the end of his life, and he's miserable. Here's what happens. During Solomon's reign, Israel is more prosperous than any other time in all of its history. But with that prosperity comes great apathy. I always have felt that apathy is the antithesis of faith, and that's what's going on in Israel. Israel is extremely blessed, and their king is miserable. Have you ever noticed that in times of blessings, it's easy to forget God? It's really true. In times of blessing, we can forget God, and that's what happens in Israel. So Solomon lives this life, and at the end of his life, he, he, he writes this 
book called Ecclesiastes. What we're going to do is we're going to focus on the, the first chapter, the first 11 verses, and the last chapter, a couple verses there. We're going to skip around to some other places. So our story picks up at the end of his life. Ecclesiastes 1, verse 1. Here we go. The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. The words of the teacher. Solomon identifies himself right out of the gate saying, I'm a teacher. Some of your translation says preacher because what he's, he's doing is he's standing in front of a, a, a congregation, in front of an assembly of people. It's called an ecclesia. That's where we get the word Ecclesiastes. He's proclaiming a truth in front of an ecclesia. You guys are an ecclesia. You're a large group of people. And so he's standing in front of this group and he's proclaiming truths. He calls himself a teacher. I think he's more like a philosophy professor because what he does in this book is he probes a bunch of different questions. He takes all the philosophies of the world and he shreds them apart with questions. I think this, this book of the Bible should be the first book of the Bible. I didn't get a vote in that, but, but I believe that this should be the first book of the Bible because it really asks tough questions about life and about faith. So he kicks it off. He identifies himself as the teacher son of David. So he is the son of David. You've got Saul, the first king. You've got the second king, David. David rules and reigns for 40 years. During that time, he has a tryst with a gal named Bathsheba. She gets pregnant. She has a son. The son dies. She, she has some grieving time. Then David brings her in. They get married, and they have another son. That son is Solomon. Solomon takes over, and he knocks it out of the park. Things are going so well. Before David dies, he says to Solomon, if you just lead in a humble way, if you focus God's people onto God and stick with his commands, he's going to rock your socks off or your sandals off. You won't go wrong. So Solomon is asleep one night, and God approaches him in a dream. And he says, Solomon, what can I do for you? And Solomon says, Lord, I just want to lead with wisdom. I want to lead your people well. Give me wisdom. I don't know what I'm doing. I need wisdom. And God said, because you asked for wisdom and not wealth and power. I'm going to give you wealth, power, and a whole lot of wisdom. We're going to press pause in Ecclesiastes. We're going to jump over to 1 Kings chapter 4, verses 29 to 34, because God is true to his word. Look what happens. Here's the result of Solomon's request for wisdom. God gave Solomon wisdom and very great insight and a breadth of understanding as measureless as the sand on the seashore. Solomon's wisdom was greater than the wisdom of all the men of the east and greater than all the wisdom of Egypt. He was wiser than any other man, including Ethan the Ezraite, wiser than Haman, Kalkul, and Darda, the sons of Mahol. Okay, hang on just a second. We don't have time to go into who these guys are. Just know they're wise guys. And, and Solomon is even wiser than they are. And his fame spread to all the surrounding nations. He spoke 3,000 proverbs, and his songs, songs numbered 1,005. He described plant life from the cedar of Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of the walls. He also taught about animals and birds, reptiles and fish. Men of all nations came to listen to Solomon's wisdom, sent by all the kings of the world who had heard of his wisdom. He was an artist, a leader, a philosopher, a scientist. He had wealth, he had power, he had reputation. But he also had another issue. And that issue was a lust issue, just like his old man David. He had 300 concubines just to satisfy his sexual desires. He also had 700 wives. He went against the Mosaic law. God told Moses to tell the people when, when they get a king, that king should have one wife. Well, he saw his dad, David, violate that, and he violated that in spades. 700 wives 
And what he would do is he would seal a foreign agreement with a foreign power or with another entity, and he would marry off or marry the daughters or daughter of that king or that entity. And what would happen is those, those wives, almost all of them were not Jewish. So they would lead him away from his faith. And for his 40-year reign, he would be miserable. He would try everything under the sun. He would be sacrificing in temples and shrines to these gods and goddesses. God didn't rip away his power for one reason and one reason only. It was a promise he had made to David. At the end of the, of the day, Solomon would spend most of his life away from God. And at the end of the day, at the end of his life, he'd write Ecclesiastes with this first conclusion. Let's go back to Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. He's talking about life here. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. What does man gain from all his labor at which he toils under the sun? Life is meaningless. That, that Hebrew word there for meaningless, it can be translated to, to smoke or vapor. So he's saying, okay, life, life is smoke. It's all smoke. It comes up, it can go any way it wants. It can be, it could go this way or it can go that way. You can't predict it. It's random and it's short. And when it goes away like that, it won't come back. When I was in the military, we were always taught to do the bottom line up front, to give the bottom line up front. And that's what I love about the Jewish writers. They would always put the bottom line up front. It's why when I stand up here and preach most weeks, when I do this, I, I say, if you get anything at all out of today's teaching, get this. I want you to hang on to that one thing, that one thing you can walk out of here with. He said, here's, here's the one thing. Life is smoke. Life is meaningless. He said, you can, you can think you can have a meaningful life, but in the end, it's all meaningless. Under the sun, it's all meaningless. This phrase, under the sun, it occurs like more than 30 times in this book. Under the sun, everything under the sun, not focused on God. You separate yourself from God, it's all meaningless, and that's an unpleasant thought. It's an unpleasant thought that everything we do is meaningless without God. But what God tells us through Solomon is, if we try to stuff the, the inside of our soul, our deepest soul need with something from the outside other than Jesus, we're going to be miserable. He says it's all meaningless. It's all smoke. Let's go back to verse 3. Because in verse 3, he asks this very, very important question, one of the most important questions in all of Scripture. What does man gain from all his labor at which he toils under the sun? What does man gain? What do we gain? What's, what's the profit? What's the eternal value, the long-term profit of what all of us do every day when we go to work, we go to school, whatever it is? And he says, in the end, it's smoke. It has no lasting eternal value, that is, without God. I'm getting depressed preaching this, and I know if I'm getting depressed preaching it, you are getting depressed listening to it. So, I knew this would happen. I can tell by your faces. So, as I was, I was putting this sermon together and I was getting depressed preaching it, I decided to Google the top 10 funniest real tombstones, you know, real-life tombstones of live dead people. So, we're going to go through those. Okay, here we go. Stay with me. Number one, I told you my feet were killing me. Okay, so picture the dude, he's, he comes home from work, honey, my feet are killing me. She's like, shut up, get on some man pants, go back to work. And then he dies. I told you my feet were killing me. Some of these are corny. This number two is corny. Uh, number two, here lies the body of Jonathan Blake, stepped on the gas instead of the brake. 
Okay, number three is, you guys have probably sang it many times at at sporting events. When your team wins and the other team loses, we're going to do this together. We're going interactive, 9 o'clock. All right, you ready? Here we go. Number three. Na, 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 hey, hey, goodbye. Cry, Tom Brady, cry. (laughs) She's a pastor's wife, man. What the heck? Number four. This one's from a mom or a dad. Don't make me come up there. (laughs) Number five's written by a good Irishman. Here lay Scotty Faye for fooling around with a marshal's wife. 1895. Number six is my favorite. He loved bacon. Okay, think about this. As a pastor, I get to officiate a lot of funerals. And, and I consider it an honor. And after the funeral, I always go up to the family. I'm so sorry about your loss. I can see the pastor coming up at the end of the funeral saying, Mrs. Johnson, I am so, so sorry for your loss. She's like, oh, pastor, he loved bacon. He'd put it on a maple bar, call it manna from the sky. Number seven, this can't be heaven. My ex is here. <laughs> I'll get an email on that one. (laughs) Number eight, follow my blog at undergroundchat.com. Number nine, come back at midnight, we'll talk. (laughs) And last but not least, number 10, I'm out of the office to reach me, text bad boy to 666. Okay, refocusing. Come on, people, we can't laugh at church. We We can't have fun. Stop that. Solomon asks that very, very important question. What's it all worth? What's the gain? What's the eternal profit for all you do, the eternal reward for all you do if you don't have God in your life? And we may say, okay, I'm going to put my foot in the sand. I'm putting my foot in the sand of the seashore. I pull my foot back. The waves are going to come crashing down, and guess what? That footprint is going to be there. Look what Solomon says in verses 4 through 7. Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. Life is one repetitious cycle, is what he says. It's circular silliness. You think you're going to make a difference? If, if you don't have God in your life, it, you're a, we're all a human speck in the span called history. Put out a, a big sand table of, of human history, and you're just a piece of dust, and it's not going to matter. You're not going to be remembered because generations come and generations go. So I said, okay, Solomon, let me put you to the test. I decided to write out my genealogy on both sides. You know, uh, grandma, grandpa, full name, full name on mom's side, grandma, grandpa, full name on dad's side. I could do it. I'm like, take that, Solomon. But then I did great-grandparents. I could only get one on each side. And then I did great-great-grandparents. I couldn't do any. And I think most of us are in that boat. We can name some relatives, unless you're hanging out on Ancestry.com all the time, but you can name some relatives. But most of us forget once we hit great-great-great, and these are our relatives, He says it's all circular silliness. Generations come, generations go. You're going to be forgotten. So he looks at nature. He says the rivers flow into the sea, yet the sea isn't full. It's all repetitive. Have you ever felt that your life is like that? That it's all repetitive? You get up in the morning, you go to work, 
You punch the clock, you come home, high-five the family, maybe you watch some TV or you do something fun that fills you up, and then you go to bed, you get up and you do it again. You do that for 50 weeks out of the year because you want that two-week vacation. And you get that two-week vacation, you go to a place you probably don't want to go to, to spend time with people you don't want to spend time with, to spend money that you don't have, and when it's all done, you come back in more debt and start it all over again. It's circular silliness. If there's no God who created you, then that means there's no eternity. And if there's no eternity, that means that all you have is this blip in life called however many years you get. And at the end of that, no matter what you do, you're going to be forgotten. Generations come, generations go. Now, here's what I think is interesting. God would have his people Read this book of Ecclesiastes, his Jewish people, before a big party, the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles occurs in the fall. It's when they they celebrate this harvest. Why in the world would God have his people read a book that requires a handful of antidepressants to chow down on before you read it, before they'd have a party? Well, maybe it's for them and us to realize this, that life is meaningless when you separate the God of blessings from the blessings of God. That life is meaningless when you separate the God of blessings from the blessings of God. That's the whole point of Ecclesiastes. Life under the sun focuses on the blessing rather than the God who gives the blessing. So I want to push back a little bit on Solomon. You know, as I said, he takes all these different worldviews and he shreds them apart with these questions. So I'm like, okay, Solomon, you say that, 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 that my foot in the sand doesn't matter. I'm going to do good works. I'm going to have a life of meaning by doing good works, devoid of God. I'm going to do good works, and I'm going to be remembered. He says, no, you won't. Because not only are you going to die off, the people you're doing those good works for, generations come, generations go. They're going to die off. And in the big scheme of history, it just won't matter. Okay, then then, then I'm going to have fun. I'm going to have joy. I'm going to eat, drink, and be merry. That's going to be my focus in life. And he says, if you do that, you got to check your brain at the door because you can't look around at all this. You you can't put your head in the sand and not address all the suffering going on in the world. It's meaningless. It's not going to matter. Okay, well, then speaking of suffering, Solomon, I'm going to get moral courage and I'm going to fight for a cause. And he says, you fool. Just like your good works, it's not going to work. That cause you're fighting for is going to be forgotten. The people you're fighting for are going to die, and you're going to die. What is wrong will never be made right. And as I look at this, I realize that no matter what you're doing, if you've got an issue out there, if you separate God out of that issue, you're going to come up short Look at all the problems of the world that we have. When we divorce God from those problems and we think we we have these solutions, it's meaningless because we really can't solve them without God. We wrap everything we have up in these worldly philosophies, philosophies that are devoid of God, and they become our own religions. And what God says is when you separate me from any philosophy, at best you're going to be confused, but most likely you're going to be miserable. Without God, life is meaningless. Let's continue on, verse 8. All things are wearisome more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. 
Okay, kind of a fun fact. A few years ago, archaeologists did a dig in the Middle East, and they found some of the scrolls that had Ecclesiastes on it. Now, you remember, uh, Solomon was an artist, and he used to doodle, apparently, as he, was write, or as he would write. So they found one of his, his scrolls. Here's a picture that was on it. <laughs> if I only had a tail, my life would be meaningful. I'm just kidding. That, that didn't happen. A couple of you are like, what? Solomon invented Winnie the Pooh, man. I love me some Winnie the Pooh, Tigger too. Piglet, I love bacon. <laughs> Let's keep on going, verses 9 through 11. Levity, levity, meaningless. Okay. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, look, this is something new? No, it was here already long ago. It was here before our time. There is no remembrance of men of old, and even those who are yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow. This gives me complete clarity on why Britney Spears shaved her head. Let's talk about success. Let's talk about success. If you think about it, you work hard, you go to work, and you're promoted. And when you're promoted, it doesn't get easier if you're doing your job. You get promoted, it gets tougher. And the tougher it gets, the more they pile on you. But you got to be a, a shock worker. You're going to knock it out of the park. So because you're working hard and knocking it out of the park, you get pr promoted again. You get more money. You buy a bigger house. And with a bigger house, you got to buy more stuff to put in the bigger house. And you get another bigger house. And your wife and kids are, or your husband and kids are saying, why aren't you coming home? Honey, i got to work to pay for all this junk. And you're miserable. But you've got to get that promotion. You keep going. You keep going. And you're never satisfied. All things are wearisome. It'll never be enough. I've been on staff here at Cornwall Church coming up on seven years. And when I came on staff here, I was meeting with my boss, Greg Krim. I love Greg. He was my boss at that time. He was the executive pastor, a good friend of mine. And I'm sitting there, and I pull out my phone. He says, what's that? And I said, it's my phone. It's a slide phone. And it's got the keyboard. I can text real fast. I could take pictures with it. I thought it was cool. He said, no, you need to get a smartphone. And he gave me 50 reasons why I needed to get a smartphone. So I went to a specific store. I won't give a name, but it was at Bellis Fair Mall. And I waited for 28 and a half hours to be seen. The guy in front of me finally died, and I was seen. And I bought this smartphone. And I came back. I was so excited, but I had bought, I had skimped. I, I got the cheapest smartphone, the cheapest iPhone out there. And I came back, and Greg's talking into his smartphone, into his iPhone. And he's doing the, the talk to text. I'm like, that is so cool. He said, well, yours does that. And I said, no, it doesn't. He said, well, show me your phone. And I showed him. He said, what is that? It's my iPhone. He said, dude, it's obsolete. My phone is a year old, and it's already obsolete. I'm getting a new one next week. It's all wearisome. <laughs> it's never enough to get the next thing because it's circular silliness. So he says these words. He said, is there anything of which one can say, look, this is something new? Last June, I think it was the Seattle Port Authority, they, they made this big announcement. We're launching a fleet of mosquito boats. They're mis it's a mosquito fleet. And it's going to you know, ferry people all around Puget Sound. It's going to alleviate some of that ferry traffic, alleviate the traffic on the I-5 corridor. And people are like, this is brilliant. It's something new. Okay, back in the 1890s, Seattle was real excited because they introduced this thing. It was called a mosquito fleet little boats to ferry people around the waterfront because of all the congestion. Nothing new. Nothing new under the sun. It's all wearisome. Fashions, hairstyles. Mullet, it's coming back. Pastor Bob, get ready, buddy. Turn that ponytail into a mullet. You're going to rock that thing. Think about fashions. 
fashion platform shoes, they're coming back. Parachute pants, they're for sale now at the, at the mall. They're back. Fanny pack, please God let the fanny pack come back because that was useful. <laughs> Think about aviator sunglasses. Let's just look at aviators. Back in the 1970s, we made fun of them. We called them Elton John Sunnies. And they're like, no, they're too big. You know, they're these big aviator sunglasses, too big. We need to go smaller. And so everybody went smaller. And then these two guys named Maverick and Goose, I feel the need, the need for speed, they came out. We all had to have those aviators because, man, I want to be like Maverick and Goose, upside down, inverted over the MIG. That's me. Too big. Go back to the skinny ones. Now they're back. I saw several of you wearing them this weekend. Crop tops. Crop tops. Uh, in the 1980s, guys who played football, they'd cut off a T-shirt, so, and then they put their, their you know, pads on. Well, then they became a fashion statement. Everybody was wearing them. Okay, public service announcement. Middle-aged men, if you're hairy and you don't have the bod to rock a crop top, in the name of all that's holy, just say no. <laughs> They're back. It's all wearisome. It's all circular silliness is what Solomon says. And if you think about what he says, there's so much truth to it. For 40 years, he lives life away from God, and he guides God's people away from God. And God is like, what are you doing? And at the end of his life, though, because he, he runs away from God, he's trying everything under the sun, and he writes about it, all those different philosophies, he's tried them out. The wisest man in the world concludes with the first thing, that it's all meaningless, it's all smoke. And then at the end of Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes 12, verses 13 and 14, he comes up with a second conclusion. And it's why I believe he repented and came back to God. He said these words. Now all has been heard, here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. He finally talks to us about the meaning of life. With the meaning of life, he gives us two things. Fear God, keep his commands. What does that mean? Fear God. It means to, to hold God in awe and reverence. Respect God. And then he says, keep his commands. Okay, the Mosaic law has more than 600 laws or rules. Let's, let's bring it down to the Ten Commandments. I don't know about you. You give me a sheet of paper and say, write out the Ten Commandments. I might get seven. That's if I've had some caffeine. So Jesus makes it real simple for us. He says, the, the whole law is summed up into these two commandments. Love the Lord with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. He gets that out of the Old Testament, Deuteronomy. And then love your neighbor as yourself. He gets that out of the Old Testament too, the, the book of Leviticus. So if you go to the 30,000-foot level, you want meaning in life? Respect God, because he's God and you're not. And then he says, love him. Love him with everything you have and love others like you want to be loved. Love with an incredible heart. The reason for living is based on love. And it's a big L not, uh, love, not a little L love. It's a love based on Jesus. Love came down in the form of Jesus. But what we've done is we've divorced ourselves from God. I call it the great divorce. It's the great divorce. The, the great divorce is where... God says yes to humanity, and we say, jam it, Jesus. We want nothing to do with you. We want to do our own thing. And it didn't surprise God. It didn't surprise God that at the end of the day, we'd be sitting here going, there's got to be more than this. And he says, yes, there is more than this. It's Jesus. Jesus is going to be the bridge between me and you, and he's going to reconcile us in this great divorce. Let's look at John chapter 1, verses 1 and 14, because what God does that's so amazing 
is he writes himself into our story. And that's why our story is a story worth telling. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and full of truth. He writes himself into our story. Think about this. John's audience, this is right after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. John's audience is a Greek audience, and they are steeped in philosophy. And what they would do is they would spar over what the reason for life is. The reason for life was summed up in a word called logos. Logos, it's the word. It's the reason for life. It's also what they would look as as the principle that governs the universe. And John says, no, man, you guys are getting it all wrong. In the beginning was Jesus, the reason for living. And Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God. He is God. Everything that has been created is created by him, for him, and through him. Nothing was created separate apart from him. And he became flesh and dwelt among us. What kind of God would do that? Every other religion out there, you've got to do something to prove yourself. And in the end, God's just going to be, he's going to be the guy that, that, that judges And God says, no, I'm writing myself into your story. I'm stepping into your dirt, and I'm going to take on your dirt so you can be made right, and we can reconcile this great divorce. Jesus said, for God so loved the world that he gave us his one and only son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have what kind of life? Help me out. An eternal life. It's eternity. See, everything is meaningless without that eternal focus with Jesus as your lead. And what happens is we get this this spiritual, I call it spiritual nearsightedness. Jesus said, I came to give you a life, and this life is a life more abundant. And what we think of is it's this life on this side of eternity. And he's like, no, this is an eternal life. Picture eternity. If you could put a boundary on eternity, and you can't, but for illustration purposes, eternity is the size of the Pacific Ocean. And our lives represented in, in that in size in comparison, our lives are an eyelash. I'm not talking like a Tammy Faye Baker eyelash. I'm talking a little eyelash compared to all the Pacific Ocean. And what we want to do is we want to hang on to that eyelash with everything we have. And God's like, I got so much more for you. I got this eternity for you, a life more abundant. I think when we get to heaven, we're going to look back on how we clung to this life on this earth and go, what was I thinking? Jesus said, what you do here on earth prepares you for service in heaven, meaning what we do here echoes into eternity. So if what God says is true, and the Bible says is true, that there is a God, and he is Jesus, and he came down to write himself into our stories and write our lives and make them right through his death, burial, and resurrection, because without the resurrection, it means goose egg nothing, then the most insignificant thing you do out of love, reverberates in heaven. It reverberates in eternity. It's the beauty of the gospel. Bad things made good through Jesus who loves us. But we can lose our focus. We focus under the sun, and what we need to do, our focus has to be above the sun. Our focus has to be on the sun, the S-O-N. Our focus has to be above the sun. Our focus has to be on the sun Jesus, not only is life meaningless without Jesus, it's powerless without Jesus. See, when you get Jesus into your life, 
when he comes into your life. He gives you a, a supernatural ability, and it's a power, a power to rule and reign in whatever dominion he's given you. Each of us have a dominion. We have a territory, and he wants us to rule and reign out of love. That's, and, and so he comes into our lives, and he starts transforming our minds and our hearts, so we start ruling and reigning as he wants us to, as servant leaders. And then he gives us more power to forgive the unforgivable and to love, love the unlovable. So why in the world is this a story worth telling? Folks, I think if you look at Solomon, so often in our lives we've been Solomon in some way, shape, or form. We followed some weird philosophy or some philosophy that we put all of our eggs in the basket. And at the end of the day, for those of us who are Christ followers, we said, no, there's something better out there. There's something that's going to give me meaning and hope and reason for living. But some of you still haven't crossed that bridge yet, and that's okay. If you're not a Christ follower, we are so glad you're with us. You're part of our family. But the reason why I wanted to share this story today is I wanted to prompt you. I want, I want to prompt you to be intellectually honest in your seeking, to do the homework. It's so easy to say, oh, those Christians, and fill in the blank with whatever it is. Oh, those Christians, they're a bunch of hypocrites. Yeah, we are. But we do our best to not be. But it's just life. Well, oh, those Christians, fill in the blank. Well, do the homework about Jesus, and we want to help you out with that. What we've done is uh, we've given, in your link, you've got three resources that you can delve into this matter more deeply. Uh, the first one is by Timothy Keller. It's called The Reason for God. Uh, the Reason for God is a great book. Timothy Keller is probably one of the best theologians of our time, I think. And it's a deep, heavy read. I'll just warn you now. It's deep and heavy. So if you're like, I don't want to deal with the deep and heavy. I want to go something a little lighter. Well, look at Lee Strobel's A Case for Christ. Great book. And if you want to look at the historical impact that Jesus has had on our lives, well, go to John Ortberg's Who Is This Man? But I would add a fourth book to take a look at. It's called the Bible. And there's, there's a specific book in there called the book of John. And the book of John is all about the deity of Jesus, how Jesus is God. And I'd say get a, 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 a translation you can understand. I, I'm not a, if you like the King James Version, these thousand doth nots, go for it. But there are other translations out there that might be easier to understand. Pray to God and say, God, I'm seeking you. And Pastor Kip said, if I seek you, I'm going to find you, so show up and watch how God writes himself into your story. Your meaning for tomorrow results in the questions you ask today. Okay, I want to leave you with a challenge. Here's your challenge. Challenge for all of us. This week, I want you to ask yourself this question. Am I more focused on the horizontal life or the vertical life? Am I more focused on the horizontal life, life under the sun, or am I focused on the vertical life? marrying what, what God wants me to do with what I'm doing here. Because what you do in this life with Jesus in your heart echoes into eternity. All right, Skagit, turn you over to Pastor Brian. Thanks for all you guys are doing. Boca Raton, those of you guys watching us online, thank you, thank you, thank you for being part of our online community. And here in Bellingham, before we stand and close in prayer, I just want to say next weekend's going to be awesome. Pastor Bob's going to be back up here, but he's not going to be preaching He's going to be leading worship. And for those of you who have seen Pastor Bob lead worship, um, it's a hoot, man. There's so much energy in the room. It's so much fun. So you want to be here for that. His sister, Lori, is going to be preaching. 
And for those of you who have seen Lori preach the heat, yowzer, it's amazing. So you want to be here for that, okay? Let's go ahead and stand, and we'll close in prayer. Heavenly Father, your word tells us that life is meaningless without you, but with you, that you're the way, the truth, and the life, that you give us this life more abundant. Help us experience that life more abundant through your love. Give us special strength this week, Holy Spirit, to love the unlovable, to forgive the unforgivable, and be your hands and feet. In Christ's precious holy name, we we pray. Everybody said, amen. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he shine his face upon you. May he shower you with grace and give you great peace this week. Have a great week, folks. Prayer team up front if you need it. Thanks a lot.